and welcome to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall, and this is my co-host. I'm Camila Lopez, and we're sitting here with Dave and Becca McKendry at the Fangoria Film Festival. And they are responsible for, uh, I guess, for interviewing all the people that are here with their films. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Fangoria and how it developed? Um, I am actually the director of marketing with Fangoria, and uh, I am in charge of pretty much heading up all of the advertising that goes into Fangoria, um, working with a lot of the different companies. If we do any promotions or anything like that, it goes through me. And I started at Fangoria five years ago, I guess it's been, about five or six now. And um, at the time, I had just moved to New York, and I was working on a Ph.D., and uh, in the middle of my PhD, I decided to volunteer for the New York City Horror Film Festival. And while there, I met Tony Timpone and Mike Gingold, um, who are the editors, and I met a few of the other writers for Fangoria. And they just really, we, we clicked, and they said, you know, send us a resume. And within two weeks, really, I was working there. And um, I started out as a um, production assistant for the radio show and uh, just kind of stuck around and worked my way up through writer to staff writer to just general helper outer to director of marketing, which I've been in for about a year and a half now. Have you always been a big horror film fan? Oh, yeah. I grew up in a very, um, I'll call it horror-heavy house. Uh, my mom was very into Twilight Zone and Star Trek. And the episodes of those that I always liked were the horror-themed ones. And so I grew up really watching a lot of uh, Twilight Zone and Jaws. Piranha was always playing in my house. It was My parents were much more into sci-fi, but uh, the horror element was definitely there. And I was never told not to watch anything. It was never like, oh, you're too young to see this. My parents just would sit me down and explain everything to me before. So if Ed, I remember in fifth grade, I told them I wanted to see Hellraiser. And my parents said, you can see it, but we're going to watch it with you. And my mom paused it every few minutes and explained to me that this is not real. This isn't really happening and explained the movie to me. And I absolutely loved it. And um, I don't know if that parenting technique would always work or if, you know, it's a good method to go with, but it worked for me. And I ended up choosing horror films and film in general as a focus for both my academic career and my professional career. Did you complete that Ph.D.? I'm in the middle of my dissertation right now. I got a semester. I'll, I'll say I got a year left. I got two semesters left to go. <laughs> Can you tell us what what is does it relate to film? Mm -hmm. um, my PhD is a PhD of philosophy focused in film, or will be. I shouldn't say I don't have it yet. So, eventually, the PhD will be a PhD in philosophy focused in film. My focus is on exploitation and horror films, um, specifically looking at cult fan bases and uh, the way that cult films respond to current media politics. Can you? Um Define for us what an exploitation film is? Sure. You know, many people have so many different um, explanations of what they feel an exploitation film is. Everything from I Spit on Your Grave to um, there are these great ones from the 1940s, sex films that just portray sex and drugs as just being horrible things. Some people consider those to be exploitation films. I read reviews where people were calling Transformers 2 an exploitation film because it was it had some very kind of questionable racial qualities to it. Um, so exploitation gets thrown around a lot. What I consider to be exploitation films are where you take something seedy, about society and play it up within your film to draw in a crowd. So um, 
see here. Uh, there's a great film from uh, the 30s, mm -hmm. uh, Sex Madness, which was all about how the horrors of sex and sexually transmitted disease. But then in this film, you have 10, 20 minute segments of can can girls shaking their butts in front of the audience. And, you know, then afterwards, we see this gratuitous scene. Then afterwards, we see the horrors of, all, of what can happen from this, you know, the sex crazed criminals and all that. But we're exploiting the audience into watching what for the time would be, at that time, would be pornography but giving the message that we're against that. And that kind of is the common theme of exploitation films, no matter how you're defining them, that you're using something that is seedy that most people would feel kind of weird about watching, but you're kind of, you know, shaping it in an educational package or look what you're learning from this movie, but ultimately they're not there for the educational lesson. They're there to see the gore, the sex, the violence, the drug use, the midgets, whatever it might be. The Masters and Johnson films. Yes, they sw did the Swedish hygiene, hygiene films. films. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. did these, um, Masters and Johnsons did these wonderful um, hygiene films um, where they would set them up as like, you know, this will show you how to take care of your sexual organs. And they were set up, yeah, and how to maintain mm -hmm. sex and proper sexual hygiene. And they were set up as these hygiene films, but ultimately they were just sex films. Yeah, showed orgies in them. And uh, I mean, there's a scene from Taxi Driver where he goes to a film on 42nd Street. And if you read the, uh, the subtitles of the film they're watching, they're talking about... Um, hygiene and cleanliness and, and and all that but it's really it's all these people having sex on screen yeah so. <laughs> so I have a question Becca for you about um, we we touched on this a little bit when I was interviewed by you mm -hmm. um, a women in horror um, both behind the camera and in front of the camera um, I've I noticed I guess Jennifer's body is is a is a the fir, one of the first of a new sort of uh, female identity in horror, or m maybe it's just more self conscious identity of what being a female in a horror film is. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Um, females have always been a really um, important centric part of a horror film, but the way that they are is is really. Um, I'm hoping it will be evolving soon. There's always been the aspect of what Carol Clover, who's a um, horror philosopher, called the final girl, which is you're going to have this sexy girl throughout the entire horror film who's going to live through the entire thing because nobody wants to see her die because she's your moneymaker. She's the sex. And then at the end, she is going to be the one who survives the whole film, and there's going to be a huge long scene where she gets chased by the killer, and then ultimately she'll either win or she'll die um, based on what type of horror film you're having. Lately, we've been seeing more females not necessarily just you know surviving the horror films but really being the central part of them where you're not seeing a weak girl if you look at something like Halloween the original as much as I love it Laurie Strode does nothing but run around and scream and she's pretty much helpless throughout the entire thing against the killer when you're looking at something like Jennifer's body the females in that film kick total ass they don't take shit from that monster. They are there to stop it, and they're not going to listen to anybody otherwise. And plus, it really does deal with a lot more feminine issues. And one film that really just kind of marked a transition for me was Teeth, um, which came out last year. Yeah, it's, it is. It's the Vagina, Vagina Dentata, Dentata. Um, which around the office we kept on singing Vagina Dentata, the song from Lion King, <laughs> um, whenever we were talking about it. 
But, um, I mean, that for me was a very feminist film because it was not about, look at the female sexual organ, it's so creepy, and females in general are just so sexual, and, you know, that was, there was so much more to it. And that for me was a very, very, I don't want to call it feminist film because usually if I say feminist, people picture shaved heads and camo outside saying down with the penis, but I'll call it a feminist I film. I think there's something feminist about seeing a vagina sit, spit out half a, a penis. This is true. That, that <laughs> might be, that could be on a poster for feminism maybe. <laughs> Not to get graphic there. <laughs> So yeah, um, I think that we're definitely seeing a shift, especially as more females are getting more active in the horror film industry. When I first started with Fangoria, if somebody had asked me to name five female horror directors, it would have taken me a while, and I would have had to sit there and like seriously go through my repertoire and my Rolodex of horror films to try to come up with five. Now, it's still a struggle. I still have to sit there and think about it, but I could do it. Can and you do it? Oh my lord, no. No, we can put on the spot. On the spot now. <laughs> no, you don't have to give me five, but can you tell me who you think are some of the most talented um, horror directors and female horror directors in particular? Some females who I think have really kind of helped out the horror industry. I'm going to start with actually Cody Diablo, and I think Dave might actually um, disagree with no, me on this one. But did Diablo direct, direct Jennifer's she Body? didn't. As a right. Well, as a director. She directed it, but, or she wrote it, but I really got to say, I think that she took a lot of liberties within the script, mm -hmm. and that that script, you could tell. I mean, it was a very kind of Diablo script. I mean, if you watched Juno, you know, there was a Diablo stamp on that, and you saw the same thing come out in Jennifer's Body. There was a definite female stamp on that that I think really, mm -hmm. it, it kind of shined through regardless of who was directing. What concerns me a little bit about that is that Jennifer's body, at least in the industry, is seen as a big failure. And I'm concerned that, you know, whenever they want to sort of stop the, the progress, they'll say, well, you know, Jennifer's body, I mean, we had Diablo, she was so famous, Karen Kusama, girl fight, blah, 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 and it still didn't make money. Whereas if a, um, a male uh, is less successful on a film, they'll just, you know, chalk it up to, well, that movie didn't work. When you think in terms of the industry, I mean, what's what's really left of the industry? I mean, we've got so many new, you know, creative artists out there. If you're just looking at what it brings in to the box office, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, who really gives a damn about that? I mean, the films that are successful in the box office from years past, who remembers them? The ones you remember are the ones that are great works of art that really do something to the genre, that really change it and shape it and that's, I think, in my opinion, that's a successful film. And I think, you know, they made a successful film there. It really did something. It really added to the genre. It's going to be a film that people are going to look at years from now and say, yeah, that's a great film. And who gives a shit about the box office? You know? And especially within the horror. I can say that here. <laughs> <laughs> especially within the horror industry, I think specifically with horror fans, that box office revenue is not always what's going to drive them. If you look at some of the celebrities that we even have here this weekend, I mean, George Romero, most of his films, I mean, prior to the recent ones, were not huge box office, you know, stoppers. But he has the longevity. Even, I mean, I just got done doing an interview with Bruce Campbell. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, I mean, these made it to the theaters, but we're not talking any type of, like, main screen releases. But these are the ones that have stuck around with horror fans. And Can you name the number one box office film that was out when Evil Dead was out, when that was released. What year was it? 1979, I think. Number one box office film in 1979. Kramer versus Kramer. 
I don't know. And see, it's but something. That's the film you remember. Is yeah, Evil you Dead. think Evil Dead from late seventies. At least horror fans do. And within the horror industry, I mean, from last year, the films that you know people uh, fans are still talking about are things like Trick or Treat, mm -hmm. um, which just got released to DVD this year. Let the Right One In. Um, Martyrs, even, yeah. and these are films that did not have any type of theatrical release. They right. did not, and festivals, maybe a couple theaters here and there, but mostly DVD releases. And they're not ones that you know you're going to look at back and say, "Oh my God, that box office draw was amazing." Right. But surprisingly, ones that do get big box office draw, like um, a couple years back, looking at Disturbia and the remake of Prom Night. These are huge box office draw films. Disturbia was, um, I'm. 90% sure was almost the number one horror film of that year. A huge box office draw. Horror fans looked at it and said, eh, we've seen this before. It's boring and walked yeah. away from it. It's, they're in and out films. You know, they go into the theater, they're out of the theater, you forget about them. Then these other smaller films, people are going to remember them. Like uh, one that we're showing, uh, House of the Devil. House of the Devil. Awesome film. Amazing. It's, I mean, you're going to, if you want to see it in a theater, you're going to see it here, maybe a few other smaller venues. But, you're not going to see a huge box office release for it, but it's a great film. And 10, 20 years from now, people are going to still remember that film. You know? Can you talk a little bit about the state of the industry in terms, from your perspective, um, how it is now? Where do you think it's going? Are you guys going to AFM? What, what do you expect in terms of um, sales and stuff like that? One of the things that I have absolutely loved being a part of is the birth of the digital filmmaking um, because it has really opened up the market to anybody. Anybody can go make a movie now. Um, and I think that that has really broadened it and made us more picky and eclectic as, as an audience as well. And that is one of the things that I feel is giving the industry a lot of strength right now. And when I say the industry, I'm going to include... Everybody from George Romero to big directors to the guy who has a camera and wants to make a film in his backyard. I put in the film industry too because they right now are all on the same playing field. There are so many filmmakers here this weekend whose films I'm currently screening and we're reviewing that made their stuff just, you know, hey, so-and-so's got a digital camera, let's go shoot a movie. And they did it. And they're just as good as everything else that we're seeing, if not better in a lot of cases. That's where I think the industry is right now. I think we might be seeing a rebirth of uh, art and quality coming into the industry. As uh, What needs to happen is the audience needs to change its focus from if it's in a theater, it's a film. You know, Start looking at it, the DVD releases. There's a lot of great things out there. And once the audience changes its mindset, I mean, the industry itself, the people making the films, they've already changed the mindset that you know, we can release to DVD and still have a, good, a great movie. Once the audience changes that mindset, we're going to see a lot of more successful, high-quality films out there and you know, releasing to the Internet or releasing to DVD. You don't have to have that big Hollywood premiere anymore. That's, you know, that's just for producers just to you know, show off their muscles. You know, that's not for artistic, quality films that we're going to be seeing. What are your thoughts about this movie Paranormal that's uh, having this explosion right now? They had a really good PR team on that. <laughs> we no. actually, um, Fangoria got to screen Paranormal Activity, I guess it was about 15 months ago. It was almost a year ago. And it was a, uh, a Wednesday afternoon that the producers kind of just walked in and they were doing a meeting with some of our executives and said, we've got a copy of this film here. You want to screen it? 
And so a group of the writers and myself sat in the intern office, which is this tiny little like cave in the Fango office, but it has the best DVD player, um, and screened Paranormal Activity. And we saw a different cut than what ended up in the theater, but I gotta say, it scared the shit out of us sitting there. There were times when we were, you know, jumping and jolting. And then, of course, we make fun of each other because that's what we do. And, um, you know, but I mean, it's got a lot of elements to it. It's what I call an organic horror film where it is such a simple, basic, natural idea that most people just, it completely behooves them to make it. It doesn't have any special effects. I mean, they're very, very minimal. It doesn't have a fancy lighting system. It's not filmed on a red. We didn't have to create massive digital effects for it. It is just so simple. Um, one camera setup, I'm sure they used multiples, but one camera setup, most of it done in like black and white surveillance camera work and just a basic scary story. And when these organic films do emerge, they get attempted a lot, but when they emerge and they are the right mix to get an audience interested, you end up with things like the Blair Witch Project. And they end up being these incredibly percentage-wise high-grossing horror films because compared to what they actually spent to make it, to what it comes back with. What do you think it's going to do to the horror film industry now going forward from this? Because I remember with Blair Witch, um, there was a huge, all of a sudden Hollywood turned its eye towards these kind of films and it didn't necessarily get anything great back, even when they threw a bunch of money at it, even at the filmmakers who made that film. What do you think will be the effect now? What, you want me to go? Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, just like anything in Hollywood, it, they oversaturate the market. People get bored with it. We're at, what, are we at Saul, Saul in Space right now? Or Saul 6. Saul 7, <laughs> Saul 6. You know, and they, they're going to oversaturate. The audience is going to stop coming, as I think they did this uh, with this la- latest Saul film. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then we're going to see them look for the next big thing to come out there to overhype. And, you know, with Paranormal Activity, really, there's, it's such a simple film, but it's a very, they had a really good PR team work on it. And mm-hmm. I think in a lot of cases. Tell us about PR. Well, with, uh, with, pu- with uh, publicizing the film, if you can really hype it up and if you've got a really good um, team and can sink a lot of money into it, you're going to get the audience to come out there. I mean, would you have gone to see that film had you not seen all the trailers that it played constantly? And one of the things that I thought that Paranormal's um, PR team did differently is in the trailers, they showed very few clips from the movie. Instead, they showed the audience. Yep. You rarely, in, when they were showing commercials, you did not see the movie. You saw instead a group of people sitting there and then jumping, or a group of people sitting there covering their eyes. So it gives it this great anticipation. Most of the people I know went seeing went to see Paranormal Activity without even knowing what it was about, but they saw these commercials that kind of pulled from the 1970s exploitation and said, you know, the scariest movie you will ever see. And you know, okay, well, I'm in now. And so that's a really good publicity technique. I mean, if you actually look at the idea of, you know, two people in a house with a handicam who think they have a a supernatural spirit, it's been done before, but they did it in such a creative way. And the PR team with those commercials was ingenious. And just the way that they didn't hype it as, you know, a a ghost story, they hyped it as a super scary story, one of the scariest movies you're going to see this year. Great marketing, great marketing. Same, I mean, it was the same marketing on Blair Witch, where it was like every, they had the word of mouth going because they wanted, they put out there, you know, was this real or was this staged? And so that spread it. You thought it was real? <laughs> I remember when Blair Witch first came out, actually, Dave and I were um, undergrads at Virginia yeah. Tech. 
and we were living together and I remember, and this is again, such a genius marketing thing on their part. They put up flyers on the campus and they did this on a lot of college campuses across the US that didn't say anything about the film. They just said, have you seen these people? And they yeah, were missing. And I mean, granted, we were near where it was supposed to have been filmed. We were at Virginia Tech, which is, you know, just a couple hundred rural, miles yeah. from the West Virginia area where it was supposed to have taken place. But we started, no, it was West Virginia. I swear it was. Okay. Um, but we started hearing all this stuff about it. And then long before the movie came out, we started hearing about this documentary footage that was circling the internet about mm -hmm. it. And that's where I first heard about it was like people sending me internet clips of, oh my gosh, these kids were lost in the woods and this is all the footage they recovered. And then the film comes out and they start doing interviews on David Letterman and the curtain comes up and you go, oh. And viral video was born yes. with that. Yes. You know. That's what I wanna um, ask you guys about because as you're in this, um, this world of digital filmmaking, and it is a level playing field, it is democratizing sort of what has been very sort of uh, aristocratic in the sense that you had to have a lot of money to do it. Now you don't, but you do have to have a lot of money to promote it and get it out there, or you might as well not have it because no one will know. There's just, it's just, there's no way to stand out. What do you think going forward um, will, will be the nature of how people get an audience to their, these digital films? Um, it's, I mean, people are going to have to, filmmakers often forget that they have to promote their film. You know, that's, you know, that happens a lot. It's the old-fashioned way of marketing. You really have to, you can't just say, write a letter to, to distributors and say, hey, I've got a film, you know, sell it for me. You got to get off your ass. You got to go out there and try to sell it. You got to go to events like this and get it to the people, get it to, you know, put it in the distributor's hand and, really work just as hard as you did to make the film. You gotta work on trying to get it distributed, trying to get it out there. I mean, creativity I think is a big thing too, trying to give people something, something that they've never seen before, even if they have seen it before, giving it to them in a new way. And yeah, like Dave says, just really getting out there. Um, I remember a couple years ago we were at one of these conventions and this girl was trying to market one of her short films to me. And she came up and she, instead of giving me a business card, she'd taken one of those film latex fake fingers that you see like in Halloween prop stores. She'd written down all the information in the movie on that. I remember that one so vividly. And I remember the film and I still have that film latex finger because she didn't just hand me a homemade DVD with the title of her film written on it and a Sharpie and say, I made a zombie film, please watch it. Those are a dime a dozen. We get tons of them a week. And it's not saying that they're not good. It's just saying that in... In the mind of an audience and the media included, a new presentation and a new packaging and anything that will make you stand out from the bunch is amazing. And God bless, I still love that film, Finger Girl. Yeah, I yeah. use her as an example in my classes on film on what is a good marketing technique. Yeah. What makes me notice you? Yeah, I got a, um, a DVD in an evidence bag once. And I remember that. And I even told the guy, this is a great idea. This mm -hmm. is, you know, this is how you got to present it. You and know? instead of using business cards, somebody gave me a toe tag with their info on it with a toe attached. It was, again, it was like a little paper toe. Real toe. Real toe. That's Real dedication. Toe. <laughs> but um, those are the things that I remember. And even with some of the trailers, there was this movie that came out a couple, Run Bitch Run. Um, and Run Bitch Run is this Very throwback. <laughs> this throwback is this wonderful um, throwback to exploitation films in the 1970s. 
very exploitive. They have the best damn trailer I have ever seen. I show people that trailer all the time, and I'm like, just watch this trailer. I don't know if the film's as good as the trailer, but a good trailer can carry you so far. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, people passing around the trailer by word of mouth, too. You oh, know? my God, this yeah. looks awesome. Like, another one that came out last year from... Um, uh, Debbie Gibson was in it was um, Mega Shark Mega versus Shark. Giant Octopus or Giant Octopus and versus Mega Shark. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, this film, it was just, I, I don't want to call it low budget because I actually enjoyed it. But um, it was a film that, you know, probably wouldn't have gotten much credence. It was a giant monster, you know, giant shark movie. and there it, it was what the title said it was. It was exactly. And those don't always get a lot of attention, but their trailer brilliant oh, yeah. and so people were passing it around at work i remember dave's dad who usually has nothing to do with the horror industry and just kind of you know doesn't ask us about what we do called us one afternoon and was like somebody sent me this trailer uh, he's like a millet you know, tell me tell me how to find this movie yeah <laughs> yeah tell me how to find this movie i want to find this one yeah and yeah. he's just like an office worker yeah. and so well, he was into horror when i was a kid was he yeah that's how i got into it actually my dad uh when my, when my parents had kids, they you know said, "Hell, if I'm going to let this stop me from seeing the films I want to see." So you know, we went out to horror. We saw Jaws, and I remember seeing Heavy Metal when I was a kid, which is probably not a film you should take a kid to see, but it is a cartoon. So I guess uh, that, that was okay. his philosophy. Yeah, that big I dragged my parents to it too. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> so what would you say makes a good trailer? If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, "Wow, that's what I'll do. I'll make a good trailer and then I'll present it." What what are the qualities that you look for in a good trailer? I wish I had a set a set formula I can give people, but I can't say, you know, fast music, fast lighting and use at least, you know, a cut every 3 seconds. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that and it goes by the film. For some people, they don't even need a trailer. They can release a clip. Um, there's this movie that's been rolling around in Europe and is now drifting over here called The Human Centipede. And it looks like the most disgusting film I've ever seen where this mad doctor decides to create a human centipede by tying people together. Um, but just that one clip, it's just one clip of the actual centipede that he creates. I have been sent that by so many of my students who were like, oh my God, you have to see this. And all they did was release like a 30 second clip of the movie, but that's enough to get people going. Other times, you know, you have to have the trailer with Run Bitch Run. It is this fast moving, in your face, crazy. We're just gonna show you everything, you know, all of the good parts of the film just kind of wrapped up into the trailer in 15 seconds or less. Yeah, you just have to be just as creative with your trailer and your promoting as you were with making the film. You know, There's no set answer to it, it's just, you know, try to get something creative and original out there. There's this old um, concept in filming and in, in the film industry that your marketing is much more important than your actual film. And I don't want to say that because I end up having to watch the films and then we give them bad reviews. So the film, the film's number one. Yeah. Good products, number one. But um, I know Roger Corman, when we did an interview with him a couple years ago, told me that they used to start with the title of the film and then come up with the rest. But if they had a good title, they could sell it. And I actually, um, in his book, if I'm correct, it's, I think it's in his book, if not, it was in an interview, he talked about how um, he actually sold a couple films based on the title before they were even made. Like, he would come up with the title, like, we're going to call this one, like, Bloody Women on the Moon. That's not one of his, by the way. Um, but, you know, if it was a good title, that they could have it in six theaters long before they ever even made the film. Well, he did sell the title Fast and the Furious to Universal, was it, just recently? So I guess there's something in a title, that's for sure. Title, marketing campaign, anything like that is just as important as the actual film. No, I'd say make a good film. Make a good Please film. Please make a good film first. But don't disregard the marketing. Very important. 
What is the focus of Fangoria? How would you cl- um, categorize what you guys you know, will see and what you will promote? We really try to get a lot of everything, and I can't even say that we're limited to horror. Our music coverage, we drift in all different directions. Um, with our even our coverage, we drift into sci-fi and fantasy. And you know, even though that we are horror-centric, we really um, kind of cover everything. And even within the horror markets, we also try to be all-encompassing. Um, even some of the more extreme horror, we have Gore Zone for which is our more adult-oriented horror. We even do some of the porn horror crossovers on there. It's our 18 and over-age-gated site. It was also a magazine that ran in the 80s for a couple of years. What's it called again? Gore Zone. And uh, even just to incorporate even a younger audience, Fangoria recently just picked up the Monster Times, which was also a um, zine that ran... Um, a couple decades back, but it was more geared towards a younger audience. It wasn't focused on gore or, you know, who's, which celebrity is going to be signing where. It was much more focused on monsters and just scary stories in general. So it was a much cleaner audience focused towards a, a kind of a preteen generation. We just picked that up again, so we're now starting to include that, which means we're now, you know, reviewing like the Halloween episode of Yo Gabba Gabba and things like that. But we really try to, you know, keep it horror is not limited to adults and it's by no means limited to this you know particular 8,000 people that come with us to our conventions every year horror is a a very broad genre that we try to include everything in and get them young and trap them into it and keep them progressing. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of we like to encourage it young yeah. but trap is um is it kind of the drug same drug dealer mentality there no, as well it's we not trap a them drug young. dealer yeah, mentality okay. <laughs> Um, would you say that, uh, I know people have said that horror fulfills something, when people watch horror, it fulfills something uh, in them, sort of, it gives them a cathartic response to things that are very intense that maybe they don't want to face. Do you see where we are right now in this economy and this society? How, how is that relating to the field of horror? Um. I mean, throughout history, when we've had bad, bad economic times, the entertainment industry seems to always pull through them and do well, yeah, because people still, you know, they want an escape. I think we see more films now because, uh, you know, maybe we got a lot of people out there that aren't doing anything right now, and so make a movie. It's cheap to do that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Are you getting an interview in here? Oh. Mm-hmm. Um. Go ahead. Oh, no. Horror will always do better during times of um, economic strife. And even, like, war, surprisingly, if we look, like, post-Vietnam, even, like, when we started with our current um, Middle Eastern struggles, Middle East, we saw a surge in horror films, not only in, like, the remakes of the Asian markets, but that's when what most people kind of term as torture porn came out as well. And, um, you know, it's weird the way that the two coincide. I think that there definitely is a cathartic moment with horror films. I mean, even if you go back to when the word catharsis was originally created, it was created in regards to, like, the Greek tragedies, which, if you look at them, are just kind of big, wrapped-up horror films. There might be a lot more crying involved, you know, when Oedipus rips out his own eyes and things like that, and, you know, when Medea kills her own children, but ultimately, they're just big horror films. And a lot of a lot of it is just told through, like, a messenger that comes on and tells this horrific tale um, and it's something that happens in your the audience's imagination a lot, but it's horrific, just like you're saying. Um, I think that we're at the end of the episode here. We always at the end though we do something called film bites, mm-hmm. which is just a little thing that you want to tell filmmakers out there to help them get their movie made. 
Um, you have one? Yeah. I mean, after after speaking to Dave and Becca, what I would suggest to a, a filmmaker is when you are in pre-production, set aside your marketing and promotional budget and also start to think of clever ways to integrate that into your overall view of how you're going to take the film forward. Something that we are learning from talking to filmmakers here especially is um, how you will fill the seats has is a lot more on your shoulders as a filmmaker than I think it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also how you're going to get hits to your website and how you're going to do all these marketing things. A lot of times the distributor will actually ask you, well, how are you going to do that? And they'll look at who, how you can fill the house, which is not something that I think as a filmmaker we naturally think about when we think, oh, I'm going to make this great movie. I <laughs> as, a, as a filmmaker, I would say the most important thing, and I was interviewing Bruce Campbell, and he kind of reiterated this point, take your time. Everything is important in a film. Audio is important. Lighting is important. Script, acting, it's all important. Take your time with it. Don't, don't just say, okay, we got to get this done and get this out there and become millionaires as fast as possible. Take your time. Every frame should be a painted picture, a beautifully painted, detailed picture that you take your time with and make a great product in the end. If you do that and you're pleased with what you create, everyone else, you, you've got a better chance of other people appreciating what you've done. Mine would be love your product. Um, I encounter so many filmmakers who are kind of like, you know, we wish we could have done this, but we couldn't do it. And, you know, we wish we'd taken more time with this. Love your product. you got to nurture it like your kid. And if you want something to happen in it, make it happen. Do everything that you can to make it exactly what you want it to be. For many people, these films become their children. Um, and they spend just as much money as they would on a child and nurture them just as much and put just as much time and love into them. And it really is kind of like, you know, these people are giving birth to something. And... It is important to make sure that you give it your full attention and your full focus and take it to the highest possible point it can go with it. Love your product and make sure that you do all that you can with it and never disregard your own work. Never think, oh, we're just a couple of kids with a handy cam in a backyard. You know, we can't do it, so let's just have fun and fuck around with it. Or sorry, mess around with it. Never disregard yourself like that. Take yourself seriously from the get-go. If you don't take yourself seriously, other people aren't either. Location scout, for God's sake. <laughs> I'm so sick of hearing, seeing films that there are planes flying over in the distance that are taking up the audio. Go out and location scout first. Nice. Location scouting. <laughs> That's our last joke. Yeah. All right. I like that. <laughs> Just for those of you who don't know what location scouting is, location scouting is when you go out and you see where you're going to shoot the film. There are people that actually their job is to go out and find out where to shoot the film, where the best place is, where they're going to get power, all kinds of things. All right, so thank you so much for being on our yes, show. This has been wonderful, and, and I highly recommend that anybody that is a filmmaker interested in sci-fi and horror check out Fangoria because they really know what they're doing, and there are a lot of great people around that you can meet, you can form communities with, they can help each other, you can watch each other's films and meet actors and directors and producers, and it's, it's very important to get out there. Don't be scared of Fangoria. Um, and please check us out online at www.fangoria.com. Thanks.